0: We hope you enjoy this podcast.
1: This week on P.A. Books, Audrey Lewis and Christine Podmanitski, authors of Andrew Wyeth in retrospect.
0: Our guests today are Christine Podmanitsky and Audrey Lewis, and they are the co-authors of this book, Andrew Wyeth in Retrospect. Christine, we'll start with you. Can you tell us where we're sitting?
2: I can. We're sitting in Andrew Wyeth's principal Pennsylvania studio. This is the studio that Andrew Wyeth moved into in 1940, and he worked here on his, Pennsylvania Tempera paintings, um, dry brush watercolors, and, and regular watercolors too, although a lot of those watercolors he did out in the field. But this was his principal studio from 1940 until um, just several months before he died. And we're sitting in the room, actually, in which he painted. Um, the, the building itself is an old schoolhouse. It was built in 1875. And and this portion of it from the outside even looks like an old schoolhouse. But in 1925, um, Andrew, uh, Andrew Wyeth's father, N.C. Wyeth, the great illustrator who lives um, just down the lane here from, from this building, who lived just down the lane from this building, um, realized that this building, this old school house, was decommissioned and it was coming on the market. So he knew that he had a number of talented children coming along in his family who needed studios. So he purchased this building and um, began to to turn it into studio space and actually the first Wyeth to work here was his daughter Henriette and she and her husband Peter Hurd worked here until um, until about 1940 when both of them um, left to go to the southwest to New Mexico. So that very same year Andrew Wyeth and his um, sweetheart, um, Betsy, were married. Um, they went to Maine to honeymoon for the summer. And by the time they came back, um, NC Wyeth had renovated um, this place for Andrew as his, his studio. And, and the interesting thing here is that not only was it Andrew's studio for the first um, 20 or so years, Um, of Andrew working here was also his residence and so he and Betsy lived in this building and they also raised their uh, two sons here in this building as well
0: so if you had come here when he was working in this room what would you have seen
2: Actually, the room I think looks pretty much the way it, it must have at the time. I think some of the the paint was probably a little bit fresher. But one of the things about Andrew was that he, both he and his father, sort of liked the natural aging of surfaces, and they didn't quite they weren't up to redecorating and that sort of thing. So um, the studio does have a little bit of a, let's say lived in air about it. It's um, all over the wall. There are photographs of um, the people and the places that meant something to Andrew Wyeth. There's of course um, right behind me an easel um, he would have worked on, uh, large mirrors in the room because he often would look at um, things through a mirror, paintings he was working on through a mirror for a little different perspective perspective, Um, drawers uh, where he kept papers and things like that, special papers, and then um, all along the windowsill he has, uh, there are jars of pigments um, that he would have used in his temper paintings.
0: You're the curator of this? I am building. the
2: um, curator of NC Wyeth collections at the Brandywine River Museum and also the curator of um, the museum's historic properties. We have three. We have this um, this building, which is called the Andrew Wyeth Studio. We have NC Wyeth's studio, where Andrew Wyeth was a, um, a student at his father's feet. And then we also have the uh, Kerner Farm, which was a place of great inspiration to Andrew um, to Andrew Wyeth and one I'm sure
1: Audrey will speak more about.
0: Audrey, when did you start getting interested in Andrew Wyeth?
1: Well, I grew up in this area, so I had known of him since I was 12 or so because my parents had a reproduction of roasted chestnuts in their bedroom. So I I knew of his work, but I really didn't come to know his work in depth until I was working here for several years and I was asked to uh, take on the Andrew Wyeth exhibition, a retrospective exhibition um, that was to be held this um, 2017. <laughs> and so I, at that time, it was four years ago, I started studying in depth. And that's how I really came to it. Um, as Christine said, um, it, the Corner Farm was a really important um, subject for him through his career. And so was Chad's Ford, this this where we're sitting right now, uh, Chad's Ford in, De- in uh, Delaware County. And, and I lived not too far from here, so I was familiar with the area and um, very interested in the idea that he was so devoted to this particular place.
0: Now, we're, we're here to talk about this book uh, that is, or you call it a catalog, from the show. Can you talk about, if somebody buys this, what they mm-hmm. get?
1: Well, this, the approach to the exhibition and to the catalog was to chronicle the career of Andrew Wyeth in a chronological way, but to also look at thematic aspects of his work. So it really was um, wide-ranging and, and focused at the same time. Uh, there have been other exhibitions in the past ten years that have looked at his work thematically, um, but we wanted to really look at his whole career since he died in 2009, um, that we thought this would be an opportune moment. Also the fact that it's the hundred-year anniversary of his birth. So that's how we really began to focus on the chronology of his career and to take um, real interest in how his career developed um, through the decades and then to take from that certain um, subjects such as uh, Christine writes about in the catalog, um, his war memories, um, also the the influence of film on his work um, and then various other subjects. Um, And we had one person, Pat, Patricia Junker, who chronicles the career. I write about portraits, and there are seven authors altogether. together. So it's, it's a pretty, um, it, I would say, it's in-depth catalog. What did you
0: learn about him putting this all together?
1: I, I think I learned that he was very complex, um, more complex than I thought, because I had, I had gone to art, I had been an artistry graduate student. Uh, he's not really taught in graduate school, at least in the past. Um, So I didn't really know his work because he was outside the kind of the the curriculum in a way because he wasn't a modernist working in the 20th century, he was still working as he preferred um, in a realist idiom really throughout his career. So he sort of fell off the um, canon, the map so to speak, in terms of my study. So I I learned a lot about him as a realist and how he wasn't just this isolated figure who uh, locked himself away, like reclusive in that's sometimes how he's been perceived. But he was this very um, smart, um, aware person, artist, who um, knew what was happening in the art world, uh, but chose the path that he chose and, and really was devoted to two subjects, um, or I should, I should say, two locations, here in Chadds Ford in Pennsylvania and in Maine.
0: Well, uh, I ask both of you, was, was he, what did he think about what the art world thought of him? Mm and did his art change as the art world changed?
1: Well, I th- he says he was not bothered by the criticism of his work. Well, I, sh- I should first say uh, he was a popular artist throughout his entire career with the public. Um, and he was popular uh, with critics at the beginning of his career um, in the 1930s into the 40s. Um, and then p- things changed a lot in the art world. Abstract Expressionism, Jackson Pollock, Franz Klein, these artists emerged and he was not opposed to that at all. He had no criticism of their work. You know, He was open, he said, to all expressions. Um, and he hit some hard times in terms of criticism in the 60s, mostly, and the 70s. Uh, he was considered old-fashioned, um, conservative, sentimental. In the book it says, uh, in
0: 1967, champions of new art looking back on 30 years of wise development regarded his body of work as monotonous, sentimental, and passé.
1: Right. and he didn't really respond to those criticisms in print. Um, he was, had a pretty thick skin, thick skin, I think. Um, but whether he changed is, is a very interesting question uh, because at that point he began to, um, to really paint new subjects. Um, he started painting a series of nudes um, and both of them were really almost underground in that they were painted out of the view of, of the public um, and out of, in particular one subject, Helga Testorf who was painted in secret, really, for 15 years, from 1970 to 85. And I, sometimes I think that his exploration of the nude was a way, really, of getting away from that perception of him. Um, not that he changed his approach to art, but that he changed, I think he wanted to be seen as much more complex than he had been.
0: Christine, how did he fit in with? The, how did he think he fit in with the rest of the art world? Did he have friends who were artists? Did they kind of hang around together? He did. Uh,
1: Edward Hopper.
2: But, well, really? but wasn't yeah. wasn't really a friend right. per se, right? I mean, he did have have interactions with other artists. He, for example, sat on a jury with Edward Hopper, right, mm-hmm. on an art jury, but. Um, I think that he was just, he was so secure in what he was doing that he didn't need, he didn't give heed to the criticism. Um, he was that secure. Yeah. And and he also had, um, as Audrey said, he, the thing that goaded the critics, I think, even more was that he was extremely popular. Um, Mm-hmm. There's the whole the whole myth that grew up, if you will, around. Um, oh gosh, now I'm going to forget um, the the painting in Maine.
1: Christina's world. Christina's <laughs> world, of course. How can I possibly
2: forget <laughs> yeah, that? Christina's well, world. Yeah. Right. I mean, that was one of one of the best known paintings of the century. Yes. Um, and and I think the the more popular he became, um, the more. Um, Rapid, the Critics became, in a way. I
0: want to read this in a chapter that that was written by Henry Adams that uh, neither of you uh, wrote, but he said, when Wyeth shipped the painting, uh, Christina's World, to a New York gallery, he commented in discouragement to his wife, this painting is a complete flat tire. And today, Christina's World is one of two or three of the most familiar American paintings in the 20th century. What makes it so iconic?
1: I think People read a lot into it from their own perception, their own emotions, and so I've heard people talk about that painting in many different ways. You know, where is she crawling towards? It's a young woman; appears to be a young woman crawling up this hill. Is she happy? Is she sad? I think there's a lot of mystery in that painting, and that's intriguing to people. And also, it's a compelling subject. Um, people may realize that she's handicapped, um, and then read into it further that this is a person who's struggling. So I think there's many sides to that painting, um, in terms of public perception, and also um, it's been so widely reproduced that it's sort of um, ingrained in people's um, thoughts. And so people come at at it, or, or scholars come at it with a different perspective. They're suspicious of it, you know, that it's too sentimental, cloying. Um, in fact, you know, Wyeth had come to that subject quite naturally when he was in Maine he was looking out the window and he saw Christina Olson, who was the subject of um, many paintings by him as was the property that she lived on the Olsen property in Cushing, Maine um, throughout from the 1939 through her death in 1968 so she preoccupied a lot of his imagination and so he had once said that he almost wished that he had left her out of the painting and I, I found that really interesting and I think it was I don't know what this partly that there was so much um, attention paid to the painting at the exclusion of other work um, or that so many people focused on the figure that they weren't really getting at what Wyeth's own thoughts were about the painting.
0: Did she get any kind of celebrity over this? I mean did people want to go meet her or yeah. did she make appearances or yeah. anything like that?
1: She, um, she was pretty quiet, kept to herself a reclusive in a way. Wait, but I think people
2: did um, travel down the peninsula in Maine to yes knock on her door yeah. and see this. Of course that was when did you said she died in 16? She died in 1968. In 68. In January, yeah. So you know it, it was that's early on and people Came after that. Came after it. But mm-hmm. I think they probably came while she was still alive yeah, too. Right. I mean, they had to travel down the peninsula and dirt roads and find them out. And and they were part of the community which the, the Olsons were part of a community which would have protected them certainly from great hordes of people. You know, someone arrives asking, Well, where does Christina Olson live? you were apt to get maybe not
0: too Mr. clear. directions. <laughs>
2: right, exactly. Um, but, yes, yeah, she did have a certain amount of notoriety, yeah. I think, because of the painting. Well, and on,
0: on that note, uh, as you approach the outside door here, there's a sign that says... Something like, I'm working, uh, I don't give autographs. Right, I
2: don't give autographs. And that is, um, that sign, as far as we can tell, was put up sometime in the 1990s when Andrew Wyeth, of course, again, would have been extremely popular. And really kind of the same sort of thing. People would arrive in Chadsport, they'd go over to Hank's, the local diner, and they'd ask, well, how do I find Andrew Wyeth? Well, again, they were liable to get sort of a, a less than complete direction. But it, um, and and the fact that this studio, um, Andrew Wyeth would he he was away during the summer. Of course, he was in Maine, and while he was. Um while he was away, all the, the vines and things would grow up over the studio, and and he kind of let things grow like that because it shielded him from the road that was out here. Um, he would, when he, um, when he came here to paint, he would pull his car all the way in and around behind the building so that people wouldn't know he was here. He was a very, very um, intensely personal man and artist, and yeah. he just simply didn't want people knocking on the
1: door, bothering him. He didn't really wanted anyone to see him when he's working. Uh, that was pretty consistent throughout his career, and he wouldn't show paintings to Betsy even until they were finished. He'd bring them home to the ho- um, to the house um, up the road after they had moved there around 1960, Sixty, early 60s, um, bring the finished work there. But Betsy didn't come to the studio very often, I don't think, did she? No, no not when he,
2: not when. Not um, when this they, was. Right, a, just the studio. Yeah, after yeah. they moved up the river, she didn't come here very often. Yeah, yeah.
0: Was he? A recluse, or would people see him at the local grocery store? They would. I I wouldn't.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't call him a recluse at all. He had um, local friends in all the pockets, you know, at Hanks and and at the um, various little neighborhoods around. Um, Lots of local friends. I wouldn't call them. Yeah, (laughs) and he painted them. Right. (laughs) Exactly. I wouldn't call him reclusive at all. It was just your um, publicity, your autograph seekers that he didn't he didn't well, he, want to deal with. He
1: was very, he had a really interesting sense of humor, I think. I've heard a lot about that. He would Tanks, uh yeah, practical he, jokes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he is not just like what you see in his paintings. I think people have said to me during, this, uh, during the run of the exhibition that they thought of him as someone who didn't smile and uh, was this very serious person, and, and that isn't what I've learned of him.
0: If, uh, if a fan would come up to him if he was at a restaurant or something, would he just tell him to go away?
1: I don't know. I've never heard of that happening. Yeah, I, yeah, it, I don't think he was going into Philadelphia to restaurants too often. Um,
0: so he didn't play the celebrity? Did he do no, anything? No,
1: no, no not, not at all. No. He wasn't interested in celebrity. Um, if, if you
0: were to be a fly on the wall in this room when he was working, what would you have seen?
1: I think you would see a little, well, chaos in a a sense, because while he was working on a tempera, he would have his studies, watercolor studies, uh, pencil studies, dry brush studies, and he would be throwing them around the room while he was working. He would walk on them. Um, He wasn't particularly neat about it. He he liked that spontaneity, and so that's what you would see, that it was not this... Man sitting in front of a canvas just painting, or a panel and just painting. It was really much more um, Anime. animated. Animated, yeah. Sure. Yeah, sure.
0: Do you know if he worked fast or slow?
1: We
2: understand that he worked quickly. Um, his um, son, Jamie, has um, said several times, several anecdotes, that he painted like a wild man, that he, um, in some cases, would, um, using broad brushes, just be slapping, painting everywhere, and that sort of thing. Um, certainly there are enough paint sp- spatters here mm-hmm. on the floor um, for one to believe those stories. Mm. But also, um, you have to realize that he was, he was painting in tempera, which is a, a little bit, it's a, a mixture of pigment, um, egg yolk, and water. Um, and you have to realize that it it does take some. Well, it takes more than some. It takes a lot of concentration to use this to use this medium. And and um, so you need to be certainly aware of what you're doing. I think deliberate in yeah. some cases mm-hmm. with what you're doing.
0: Why did he use that medium?
1: Well, what it's would interesting. You say? I would say. First he used watercolor as well, so watercolor was more or less what he would call his, his um, free side, and then the tempera was more measured. Um, when he started painting in tempera, uh, I think um, he just, he, he liked the earthiness of it, also that you could build layer upon layer, almost like building, the er- building with the earth. Uh, he has said such things to um, his uh, biographer, uh, Richard Merriman um that he just felt more comfortable with tempera than oil he worked in oil well, just and, briefly and yeah.
2: i would say that one of the reasons he chose to tempera and watercolor is those were the two mediums that his father did That's not work right. in and and there were times when Andrew Wyeth was all for just a complete break with his father. Andrew Wyeth was not going to be an illustrator like his father was, and he, his father was um, uncomfortable with tempera, and C. Wyeth tried um, in the late 30s to um, to do temper painting and he although his tempers are beautiful he was just not he was just not really comfortable with it he he and see like that slide of the oil paint more and I think um you know when someone says why did Andrew Wyeth choose to paint in temper the first thing that comes to my mind is well because his father didn't is sort of Mm -hmm. the answer.
0: Speaking of NC Wyeth, Christine, uh, you mentioned you're the curator of the NC Wyeth. Um, I'm
2: curator of NC Wyeth collections here at the museum and of the historic properties, one of which is NC Wyeth Studio.
0: And if people don't know anything about NC Wyeth, what should they know?
2: Well, he was one of the most famous illustrators of the first half of the 20th century. Um, In the so called sort of golden age of illustration, um, NC Wyeth worked from uh, probably about 1905 until, say, 1935, um, with really um, top drawer, just famous illustrations for many, um, many, many stories, for both adult um, adult stories and children's stories. He's most famous for a series called The Scribner's Classics, and that would have been um, Treasure Island and The Boy's King Arthur and Robinson Crusoe and that sort of thing. So the interesting thing there is, of course, Andrew Wyeth grew up with a father who had this incredible imagination, who was basically um, retelling these stories visually, um, setting the stage uh, for these stories. So um, that's the start, I think, of, of fostering an imagination in his son.
0: Was N.C. the one who decided the family should live here at Ford?
2: Yes, N.C. absolutely was. He came here. Um, as a Howard Pyle student, Howard Pyle had a school of illustration in Wilmington, and um, which NC Wyeth joined in the late fall of 1902. And then every year Howard Pyle would take his students to Chad's Ford as sort of a summer school. So in the summer of 1903, NC Wyeth came here. He was a um, displaced New Englander. He was terribly homesick, and for some reason um, this kind Countryside reminded him of his New England countryside. He absolutely fell in love with the area and while he um, did go back to Wilmington and actually bought his first house in Wilmington um, because there was a little group of students that stayed around Howard Pyle in Wilmington for a while, um, he very quickly by 1908 he and his wife had decided they would settle here and in fact they rented a house here for three years, an old farmhouse, until they purchased this property, which is basically adjacent to this property where we're at now, Um, that was uh, 18 acres in 1911. It's actually the house you could say that Treasure Island built because he used um, the money that he had earned from the Treasure Island Commission as a down payment for uh, for the property.
0: And as curator of the N.C. Wyeth collection, what, what does that involve? What do you have to do?
2: Oh, well, um, it involves a lot of fun, actually. We have um, quite a large uh, collection of N.C. Wyeth paintings at the museum. and
0: The museum is the Brandywine River, Brandywine museum. River
2: museum, mm-hmm. museum of Art, yes. And um, and it's my pleasure to decide which ones get put out. So and you rotate them? Yes, absolutely. Rotate them as much as we can. And, and you know, I, sometimes I rotate them on the basis of um, anniversaries what's going on in history that sort of thing for example this year uh, 2017 is the 200th anniversary of the birth of Henry David Thoreau and N. C. Wyeth did um, two paintings of Thoreau so we've had those in the gallery for a little while for sometime this summer just sort of in celebration of that um, we have more paintings than than gallery space sometimes I wish I could get them all in. So we have to
1: rotate them.
0: Did did NC Wyeth decide fairly early on that Andrew Wyeth was going to be an artist?
1: I think Ooh. Andrew really I yeah started himself. I don't from a young, young age, um, Andrew Wyeth was painting. Sure, and the fact of the yeah. matter
2: is that there were four children before um, Andrew Wyeth, and three of those had already shown artistic inclination. So although I'm sure um, N.C. didn't force Andrew to be a It'd be an artist. There was art in the air. Yeah, right? there's a letter. There's a letter that N.C. Wyeth wrote. That's really, um, I, I love it. He he's describing to someone the after dinner parlor trick. He calls it. Everyone's sitting around drawing, painting. The whole family was sitting. His
0: wife didn't, of course. Well, but. is that is, is there a, an artistic gene? I mean, can somebody be born with artistic talent no. like that, or is it just the <laughs> atmosphere that they grew up in that? caused them to all be artists.
1: I think it's a little bit of both. I would think. I mean that's always I guess that's a very I don't know, I'm not a nature or genet- nurture, but I would think that but... yeah. Uh, I would think there's a little bit of both, but yeah, uh, Andrew White's son Jamie is an artist. Right. right, certainly it, it, there yeah. was the
2: atmosphere, I yeah. mean, it was, it was, it. Just, it was yeah. just art, yeah. and, and, and yes, that constantly yeah. nurtured. Um, the, for N.C. Wyeth, the, the, the most precious thing he could give his children was an imagination to, to learn to use their imagination. Yeah.
0: Um, when was it that Andrew Wyeth started getting noticed by the art world? Well,
1: 1937. Uh, his work was shown at the Macbeth gallery in New York City which was a gallery of American art Um, and he showed his watercolors from Maine and he had actually gone to the Macbeth gallery the summer before I believe and and brought his work there and they were really impressed with it so he had a show 1937 uh, October I believe and it was sold out within a couple days maybe two days and he received a lot of press notice at the time, New York Press, and that really was the launching pad. And those works were very different from what people think of as a typical Andrew Wyeth. Um, They were the main coast, um, he he painted them during the summers, they're brilliant blues and purples and um, very, very gestural, spontaneous, and they remind one of Winslow Homer, who was somebody who Wyeth idolized, especially at a young age and they're very reminiscent of his work. So 1937, and then he showed again the following year at the Macbeth. So that began his career, and then other people took notice, like the Whitney, the Museum of Modern Art, um, included him in an exhibition that was very um, critical to his career in 1943, a group exhibition. And so that really began the, um, the attention, with the attention being brought to him for his watercolors. Um, but then his tempera um, drew attention too.
0: You said there's a there's a different something fundamentally different about his watercolors than his mm-hmm. tempera.
1: Yeah. Well, the watercolors and there's there's so many there's a couple phases of his watercolors really. Um, this 1937 through 1941 or so was really this particular group of paintings um, that were in the Winslow Homer tradition more or less. After that. He wanted to find his own voice, and he started moving in different directions. But the water, the way he approached watercolor was very different than it was his te- than he did with his tempers because he had, could be more spontaneous with the watercolors, and and I, and, he, and he called that his free side. Um, he was able to express himself very freely, you know, almost wild. Would you recognize own. it
0: as being two works by the same artist, or could it be? Is it that different?
1: I think it's I think I would def I can recognize it yes I mean, the early work is surprising to people because of the palette his palette really changes in the 40s to become more um, monochromatic in, in a sense you know lots of ochres and umbras and gray and so people tend to think of him with that limited palette um, but the color does come into his work um, sporadically um, but yeah at that point I can I can see it. I don't know whether everyone can see it. I I feel like there's some of the dry brushes, which that I should explain that technique. Um, dry brush is a watercolor technique, but in it he squeezes out the water from the brush and almost draws with the uh, pigment. So it has a similar effect as the tempera. Tempera, right? Yeah. So there's like three things with white. There's the watercolor, transparent watercolor. Uh, and pencil, and then there's the um, t- the dry brush, and then the tempera, and the, and he would say they all represent different sides of him.
0: If you looked at uh, say ten of his pieces, could you put them in order that they took place? Did, did his style evolve she, over she time? I could now. I think with his temperas,
1: I think I could. Um, I th- tempers, I think I could. Uh, the the watercolors are sometimes they are parts of something. They're, they're a means to an end, in a sense, some of the watercolors. Um, he, he was interested in the, the, the flora and fauna of this area, so there's lots of uh, studies of trees and of leaves and of the ground, of the earth. That and he some sing. of
2: those, the interesting thing to me, and we show some of them here in the studio for our tours, is some of those watercolor studies are so loose as to be almost abstract, right. and then some of them are the, the um, nature studies, yeah. very realistic, um, very painstakingly, but beautifully done.
1: Yeah, and he always said that he was not just a realist, he, was, he, was also, he also was an abstractionist. Not in the sense that you think of um, as Jackson Pollock, um, but in the sense that um, shapes and forms were very important to him. Um, so that he, we do have these spontaneous watercolors where um, it's a little disorienting, you're not sure um, where you are in them. Um, and sometimes the studies as well for particular paintings. Um, he'll go through a series of studies and, and each of them develop in a different way. And he said he never started the same way. You know, he always he, he let his, uh, the work direct him. And his own persona, I think, um, is always in his work. Um, no matter whether he's painting a portrait of Christina Olsen or Carl Karner, um, there's always Andrew Wyeth in that.
0: Do you know if he ever got well into a painting or done a painting and think this is garbage and destroyed it?
1: Uh, I'm sure he did because I don't know about temperas. Um, I think I've,
2: I've heard, heard that he has, he's definitely scraped out passages yeah, or yeah. um, sandpapered out passages. Yeah. I know um, one of the, uh, is it um, the German where he talks in an interview about being Absolutely stuck with this painting of Karl Kerner, his neighbor Karl Kerner, um, in a German uniform and helmet, and he's absolutely stuck with it. He can't go any further. And then um, he decides he's—it was a great risk taker at some points—and so he mm-hmm. decides um, he's just going to pour some black, some black ink or whatever, on this painting and manipulate it the way you would, and see what happens. And and we are left with what mm-hmm. happened, which is really quite wonderful. So, so yes, yes yeah. he he did. He was willing to take those risks of
1: scraping stuff out, or yeah. And even when he didn't scrape things out, he was always editing himself. So there was oh. a painting like Groundhog Day, which is at the Philadelphia Museum yes. of Art, and um, is reproduced in the book. Um, it went through many phases. You know, he had Anna Carter in and he had a dog in it. He took the. Gannett Kerner out, she was sleeping, and she wasn't, and then at the end, you're left with something completely different, you're a single solitary table setting and a view through a window. So he he, he was always editing, distilling, um, finding the essence of, of, of what his subject um, is, and it was developing out in his mind as he went along.
0: Now, in this book, um each of you wrote a chapter. And uh, Christine, I want to ask you about your chapter. It's uh, Andrew Wyeth's War Memory, the Enduring Influence of NC Wyeth and World War One. Now, why did you either choose that chapter or get that topic assigned to you? Oh uh,
2: Well, I chose it, actually, because um, as curator of the historic properties, I was aware that in both this property, the Andrew Wyeth Studio and the NC Wyeth Studio, there are an awful lot of um, World War I artifacts. And I also was um, very much aware of N.C. Wyeth's work during World War I. Um, he uh, illustrated some um, articles for journals, he did some poster work, that sort of thing. Um, and, and I know that uh, because he did not, he was not one of those artists that went abroad, he made a, um, a great effort to collect artifacts from World War One. actually while the war was going on um, as best he could, uniforms and helmets and things like that. But he also collected um, the visual resources he needed to illustrate the war. If he was handed a commission, he needed to be able to do this realistically and factually. So he um, he, for example, um, saved from the New York Times. Um, over 300 pages uh, from what was called their rotogravure section every Sunday The Times would publish this it was either a five or seven or eight page rotogravure section where they would have the um, the, the war pictures the pictures from the war that were cleared for publication by the War Office and 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 this N.C. Wyeth Wyeth saved all of these um, so that he could see what the officer's uniforms look like, what the enlisted men's uniforms look like, what the bombed out villages of France look like. He needed all this information. So he saved that. Um, There were all these visual resources in his studio. Well, Andrew Wyeth, 10 years later, as an 8, 9, 10-year-old, he came along and expressed an interest in World War One as any boy might at that age, and he had all of these resources in his father's studio available to him. So um, by that time there were stereoscope cards, um, the war in 3D basically, that you would pop this stereoscope card in a viewer and you could see the the, the battlefields of France, the bombed out villages in three dimension. Um, he would put on an overcoat. Uh, Andrew Wyeth would put on a a German overcoat or put an American helmet on. His parents bought him a, um, would buy him periodically for birthdays or Christmases, these little statues, um, military uh, miniatures. They were about four and a quarter inches high. They were actually German-made at that time by two different companies in Germany, Um, and they were um, sold in the United States. His parents would buy them at one, makers um, for Christmas or birthday, and he actually ended up as an adult having a a collection of over 900 of these. So uh, the war was, for this young boy, it was a big thing. And, And the interesting part of it was not only was he playing war and looking at war pictures, Andrew Wyeth was also drawing war at that point. That was his art expression. And there are literally remaining, I would say a couple hundred anyhow, of his juvenile drawings, where he's drawing his soldiers in battle position, where he's putting them into trenches or he's drawing tanks and um, and he's blowing them up, great explosions, and Audrey talked about, you know, the, the watercolors, this very free, easy watercolor that um, Andrew Wyve burst upon the art world, well it's my contention that he was able to do that because as a child he had become very familiar with watercolor medium um, as he worked with all these drawings. Uh, he was no longer afraid of it. He knew how to make these beautiful swishes. He had a little idea of what was going to happen, and it was not something he learned from his father. His, his father was an oil painter, and his father um, could draw, but uh, his father wasn't, although there are a few NC watercolors, um, his father was not a watercolorist, and so Andrew... Uh, you know, as, as a young artist bursting upon the scene in New York, he had to draw from somewhere. And I think it was these early battle pictures of his. Um, uh, imagery, World War One imagery, goes throughout Andrew uh, Wyeth's career of... Uh, an essay in the book is by Henry Adams, um, a scholar who talks a lot about the effects of the movie of uh, the 1925 silent movie *The Big Parade* on Andrew Wyeth's work and. Um, that was a war movie that Andrew saw um, at eight years old and that he continued to see for the rest of his life. It was a fa- favorite movie of his. We still have a reel-to-reel projector here in, in this studio that he used to show the, the, he would screen the film for anyone he could Get to stay and watch it. Uh, Henry Adams estimates he saw it over 500 times.
0: And Henry Adams drew, drew a connection between that movie and Christina's World painting? He, he, did. he did.
2: And he also, I um, mean, he, he drew more of a connection, I think, between that and uh, another painting um, by Andrew Wyeth called Winter 1946. And this was the first major. Um, temper painting that Andrew Wyeth did after the death of his father. And it, it's, uh,
1: Audrey, yeah. jump in here too, yeah. I mean, yeah. it was It was, it was just a few months after his father's death. Um, N.C. Wyeth died, um, along with his grandson, young grandson, in a tragic accident. Um, they were driving in a car, and uh, they either stalled on the railroad tracks, or something happened, and they were hit by a train. In, not far from here, Uh, not far from the Kerner Farm, which is where Andrew Wyeth would paint for many, many years, um, right at the base of the hill. And that trans... uh, Both were killed instantly. Instantly, right. And that really transformed Andrew Wyeth in many ways. He said it was, I think it was, you know, was the single most, um, um, the biggest turning point in his career because he began to really think about reasons to paint. He thought he had not really gotten to th- in depth with anything uh, prior to that moment. So with Winter 1946, um, he, he describes it as a way of, of working through his grief, uh, but it's a figure running down a hill, um, Kerner Hill specifically, um, which is, as I said, near the part, place where Andrew, um, N.C. died, and it began to um, take on a form of symbolism, symbolic of his father's death. The hill became symbolic of his father. And the the, the boy running down the hill became symbolic of him, his feeling at loss at that moment. But it also um, had relations to the big parade specifically. Right, exactly. The hill hill,
2: um, occurs in the big parade. And the final scene of the big parade is a figure running down a hill very similarly shaped to Kerner Hill. Mm and then to go on with the sort of war analogy the figure in Andrew's painting wears a vaguely military style jacket the hill of course is is just a desolate hill at this at this time of year um when it was October it's just Mm -hmm. brown and whatever there's a rutted cart track um, there's a barbed wire fence. Will all of those rotogravures and um, stereoscope cards, views of the war that Andrew had looked at as a child, um, there were a lot of desolate landscapes and rutted rutted fields marked with barbed wire, which is of course uh, an icon of the first world war so it, it's all very much tied together yeah. especially though to the big parade. It, well, this was a movie that he saw first with his father and then and his father,
1: um, w- loved, the his father well. loved the movie as well. His father
2: loved the movie as well, and and so the whole thing is, is tied together. Do you know if
1: the movie is available?
0: I and mean, is it on DVD or? I it
2: is,
1: it is on DVD. It is. Yeah. I I bought it. <laughs> <laughs> is it any good? It, you know it's it's harder for us to watch. I think is uh, we're so used to faster moving. It's silent. But yes, it oh, was it was good, and it, it was very compelling. And I think that um, wife later wrote to King Vidor, the he director did. of the film, and talked about how that film, film influenced him. him. And it was it was in his subconscious, really, for all those years. The imagery yeah. was, the imagery in, was in, there. In, the
2: sub, in his subconscious yeah. for all these years. And I think
1: also the, the way uh, Vidor told the story, which is what, through suggestion and realism and not um, a straightforward, linear manner. Wyeth's work often has... Um, Meaning that is not always evident when you look at the painting. I mean, you'll see something, and you'll wonder what is happening, and you, you don't know for sure. It's, it's very open-ended in a way. And I it's think very that's personal what the, to the artist. What, very personal to the artist, very open-ended. Um, people may look at that painting, Winter 1946, and think, there's a boy running down a hill. What's he running from? Who's he running towards? You don't know. But you just know that there's a feeling of angst of some kind happening in that painting.
0: Well, I want to get you to each talk about this painting here because this is not the the sort of sentimental subject matter that people think of when they think of Andrew Wyeth. What what's the story behind this painting, Spring?
1: Well, there, it's first of all the and subject, it's,
0: and it's in your chapter on.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> it it War is, injury. and yeah. and. And I talk about it, too. We, it's it's one of those paintings. It's iconic.
2: Right, that, yeah. and the, there is a lot of meaning in it. Andrew Wyeth gave um, a number of interviews about it, and he, again, felt that he was sitting with his longtime friend Carl Kerner when um, Carl was very ill, and... Um, the in Andrew reports that in the conversation it comes up that um, Carl says something about Andy. Did you hear that snapping? And Andrew Wyeth himself, we don't know whether. In the telling of it, whether Carl Kerner goes on to say or whether Andrew Wyeth goes on to say that the snapping is the cutting of barbed wire in one of the stories that Carl Kerner told the young Andrew Wyeth when he was just a boy, eight, nine, or ten years old, going over to visit the Kerners. Um, so it, it, Andrew Wyeth says that, that that war memory moved him out of the spot from where he was and he was then able to place Carl into that to that snowbank so you
1: can and and it's and it's actually on Kerner Hill so there's the tie back to his father in a way because he talks about sitting at his father uh, his uh, on his father's um, body after he had died he came to the place where he had been laid out and sat there for hours with the body, and I think that partly feeds into this um, painting as well, um, because Carl is dying at that moment. Carl and Carl Koerner. was somewhat of a surrogate <laughs> father. Yeah. Um, so the hill's symbolic of the father, um, Carl Kerner symbolic of his father. So it, it's it's it, a lot goes back to his father very often, and, and also to the war, as Christine said. Um, there's that war memory that's playing into that that painting.
0: And before we run out of time, I want to talk about your chapter, mm-hmm. Audrey. Your chapter is the Kerners and the Olsons, and you mentioned both of them, but who were they, and why yeah. were they so intriguing to, right. for Andrew Wyeth to paint?
1: So the, the Kerners lived not far from this studio that we're in right now, um, just over the bank, I would say. Sure, um, right, exactly. It was just down It was down, down the, the lane yeah. and across a couple private properties. Yeah, yeah. And, and they Carl um, Kerner and his wife Anna lived there. Carl um, was a uh, and Carl and Anna were both ger- born in Germany, and they came here in 1920s um, after the war. Carl had served in the German army, and they um, ev- they rented this farm, and eventually Carl bought the farm. But but he worked the farm for since the 1930s, um, and Carl was very welcoming to Andrew Wyeth when Andrew Wyeth, as a teenager, asked if he could paint on the farm. He was drawn to that farm. He was drawn to um, I think the kind of the the mechanics of the farm. He was drawn to the earth, the idea of this, um, this farmer you know, with this history of the war behind him um, coming to America and, and having to work this farm, um, bringing his family along. Um, Anna Kerner, his wife, was always homesick for the, fa- for the um, old country. So they, ha- they were a complex couple, and the farm itself was of interest to Wyeth, um, the physical aspect of it. So Wyeth began painting Carl Kerner um, 1930s, but he did his first portrait of him in 1948, which was right after, um, three years three after years his father's years. death. Um, he met Christina and Alvaro Olsen in Cushing, Maine, um, in 1939. So it was a, not too long after he'd met the Karners, and they became, the, the Olsens became his subject in Maine. So he would spend three to four months in Maine out of the year, and the rest of the time on, um, in the winter and um, fall here in Chad's Ford, and I think he was drawn to both of these people, or actually all four of these people, because they were outsiders in a sense. Um, Christina had this degenerative disease that caused her um, to lose ability to walk. Her brother was um, a former fisherman who had to give up his life as a fisherman to take care of her, and he was—you know—it was, um, you know, it was uh, he didn't want to give up that. So being a farmer was not something that he enjoyed. Um, Carl Kerner was an outsider just because of his um, German heritage and so Wyeth was drawn to that. He said that he felt like an outsider all his life too, from the time he was a young boy um, when he uh, was homeschooled essentially because he was ill, sick at a young age, and he didn't um, want to go to school. His parents let him stay home. So he was uh, taught at home. So he never really socialized with other too many other children. He did socialize with some, but uh, in a sense, that was what he was drawn to. Um, he felt a commonality with them.
0: Did he ever do portraits for hire?
1: Very rarely. He didn't. He didn't like to do it at all. He would. He turned down Richard Nixon, who asked specifically, uh, personally asked why to paint him. He said no. He wouldn't do it. He did paint a few portraits of uh, Wilmington luminaries um, okay. and, and he didn't enjoy it. So he, he wanted to find his own subjects um, and he was drawn to people in this area. In addition to the corners, he also painted the people of little area around Mother Archie's Church. Mother Archie's Church being an African-American church that um, was founded in the late 19th century and became a community of um, people who Wyeth befriended and um, he would paint there. In fact, the, the cover of the catalog on the of has the one yeah. such person on there who was um, local to this area, Wilbert Snowden. So he thought of portraiture as just simply more than just a, um, a depiction of a human being. He, th- he saw it as more complex. And so that's one reason we. C- the last part of the title of my um, essay is the symbolic direct and symbolic portraits, because some of them are portraits of the person, some of them are portraits of places associated with that person.
0: There was also uh, two of his subjects, uh, Siri Erickson and then Helga, uh, and the Helga... Helga Testorf? Was, mm-hmm. uh, that was fairly late in his life, and it was controversial when the Helga paintings were... Yeah, so... He, announced?
1: Yes, he started painting Siri Ericsson first, in 1967, yeah. or 68, and she was... Almost a replacement, in, in a sense, for um, Christina Olsen, who died that early in January of 1968. He was looking for new subjects in Maine, and you know, subconsciously or unconsciously, and he f- saw Siri Eriksen, who was a teenager, and she was the daughter of a farmer. Um, I started painting her in the nude and also um, clothed, and they were paintings that were not shown until she was older, she was 19 when they were shown finally. So this is a kind of the secret, where the secret life starts almost. Um, he starts painting in 1970 the series of um, like 240 works of, of Helga Tesdorf, Chad's Fort. So in both places he's working, um, he's producing lots of other work, but he's also um, focused on Helge as well, especially um, Helga from 1970 to 85. 15-year period.
0: Did he just stockpile them and not show them to the public? Yes,
1: he did. He, some, well, they were hidden at various spots. Um, some of them were at the corner farm, because many of the uh, studies and paintings of uh, Helga were begun in the third floor uh, one, of the one of the rooms, in the rooms in the third at the, the Carter farm. And also, um, yeah, so, the, so it was essentially secret from the, most people.
0: Did he paint until the end of his life?
1: Yes. He did, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. His last painting is in the book. Um, it is called Goodbye. Uh, it has had various titles. Um, but Betsy Wyeth named many of his works, and she p- put that title on that painting. And do you know, was it before he died that she named it Goodbye? I, I, I No, I'm not sure. Sure because whether. It was, yeah. But she called it Goodbye, partly because um, this painting represents a scene at one of the islands that they um, they owned in Maine, small island. And he would leave the island every Monday or so to go paint at his studio on the mainland. So partly that was the reason for the title. Yeah, you know, the, so it's, it's a boat it's going it's a boat, off. It, it's a boat going off. off. And um, so one of the authors in the catalogue writes about these boats that was a recurring subject in his um, in his work. and about how they meant escape and how they also meant dislocation and abandonment and um, these single boats that he often painted. But getting back to your question about the last painting, um, he started this 91st birthday, I believe, um, when his wife Betsy gave him, as a surprise, a rebuilt sail loft uh, on the island um, that had been reconstructed on the island um, over the winter and spring. So when he arrived in the summer, I mean, I think he knew about it, but, it, but essentially it was a surprise. surprise. So to thank her, he, he started this painting, and it's kind of an homage to her as well as, um, as well as his last work. I mean, he didn't know it was his last work, of course. Um, but he finished it uh, that, uh, in the fall of that year, and then he died in January of 2009.
0: Uh, we only have a couple of minutes left. Uh, if someone comes to the uh, Brandywine River Museum, what do they see?
1: Well, there's three generations of Wyeths, and, and also uh, American art um, other than the Wyeths. I mean, there's some regional focus on the, um, on the collection, but also uh, beyond that, we also are, um, we show works that have an affinity to the region, uh, to the artists in the region. Um, and they also
2: have the opportunity to tour right. all three of the places that we've spoken about during this hour, the Andrew Wyeth Studio, the NC Wyeth Studio, which is an entirely different looking place than this studio, and then also the Kerner Farm as well.
0: So someone's able to tour the studios? Yes, studio all all right the now? tour
2: the studios and the Kerner Farm, yes.
0: And uh, what should people come away with when they when they visit here?
1: besides where swell <laughs> place the museum yeah, is. No, I think, well, one of the things I think people will feel, if, they, if they're coming to see Andrew Wyeth, is when they're coming to this area, you really feel like you're in Wyeth country, in, in a sense, because so much of his work captures the essence of, of this part of Pennsylvania. Yeah, and that's
2: something that we didn't really go into that we probably should have, yeah. is that the Wyeths were so rooted to this very spot, and they're not rooted to like two towns over or three towns that way. They're rooted to Chadsford Ford and this very spot, and that was right for NC Wyeth, and it was also right for Andrew Wyeth. Mm -hmm. And so when people come here, as Audrey said, they really are getting not only the opportunity to see the art, And if they come to the studio where the art was produced, they're getting to see the environment, Mm -hmm. the natural setting that inspired a lot of the work.
0: Well, that'll have to be the last word. We've been speaking with Christine Podmanitsky and Audrey Lewis, and they are two of the contributors to this book, Andrew Wyeth in retrospect. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about P.A. Books.